fourth watch starts now. Hello, everybody. You're listening to The Fourth Watch with Justin Fall on The Fourth Watch Radio Network. I hope everyone's having a blessed week. Tonight's going to be an up-close and personal interview with Hollywood screenwriter Brian Gadawa about his research into the ancient supernatural history and how he incorporates it into his books. We've got a lot to cover, so let's go ahead and start the adventure. Submitted for the approval of the Fourth Watch Radio Network. I call this episode The Dragon King with special guest Brian Gadawa. Well, it's Thursday again, and I am so excited to be back with you all, and we have quite an adventure for you tonight. But real quick, things are going extremely well, and God is so good, ladies and gentlemen. I just want to say thank you again to everyone who's been so generous to give and further the good fight of the Fourth Watch Radio Ministries, and I pray that the Lord would multiply your gifts back unto each of you richly. If you're feeling led to help support this ministry, you can head on over to fourthwatchradio.blogspot.com. That's the number 4, T-H-W-A-T-C-H, R-A-D-I-O dot B-L-O-G-S-P-O-T dot com. Fourthwatchradio.blogspot.com. There you can easily give by clicking the PayPal donate button on the right side of the screen. This is a permanent link for any time you feel led to support the broadcast of the Fourth Watch Radio Ministries as we're growing and reaching more people. Now, if you're a new listener, we're very grateful to have you tuning in, and we want to let you know that there's a brand new show posted every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard on the 4th Watch Spreaker page, which is S-P-R-E-A-K-E-R.com, Spreaker.com. You can go on over there and search for the 4th Watch, or you can go to the 4th Watch Blogspot page, which we've mentioned earlier. You can find the Justin Fall YouTube channel, and you can subscribe for auto-download in iTunes. Or you can just easily download the 4th Watch app for your smartphones and mobile devices for free. If you want the app, just search Justin Fall, J-U-S-T-E-N-F-A-U-L-L, in your app stores for Apple and Android. Now tonight we're joined by author, researcher, and Hollywood screenwriter Brian Gadawa, which is an honor and a pleasure, and we'll be discussing some of his research that's right in line with supernatural ancient history and biblical accounts, which he's compiled into some amazing book series. Brian's website is Gadawa.com, that's G-O-D-A-W-A.com, and you'll definitely want to check that out once you've had a chance to get to know Brian in tonight's show. Also, tonight's Bible study following the interview is an important biblical approach to circumstantial decision-making and how this can vitally impact your life for the better or for the worse. You definitely don't want to miss this, so be sure to stay tuned in for that as well. But now, without any further ado, let's go ahead and welcome on Brian Gadawa. Brian, welcome to The Fourth Watch. How are you tonight? Good. Great. Thanks for having me, Justin. Oh, it's so awesome to have you on. And you know, one of the things that really gets my attention about you, Brian, is that you had your start in Hollywood. Uh, you've written screenplays. And matter of fact, you worked on a, on a movie. You, you were the screenwriter for the award-winning feature film To End All Wars with Kiefer Sutherland. 
Yep, yep, that was me. That was my first movie I got made about, uh, oh, I don't know, maybe 13 years ago now. You know, when I hear Kiefer Sutherland, I'm always thinking, I'm Jack Bauer, and this is the longest day of my life. <laughs> <laughs> hey, let me tell you something. I think the movie you're talking about, Two Endal Wars, I think it was Kiefer's best, best movie performance ever. Um, and so I, I'm really, I'm really proud of that film, and I'm really proud of what, what he pulled off on it. Not only him, but, you know, when that movie came out, we had a bunch of unknowns other than him um, or guys who were not as famous or far along, such as Mark Strong. Mark Strong wasn't even uh, known at that time. And now, of course, he's really a big star. And and we also had Robert Carlyle and um, some other guys. So it's it's really um, it was really quite a an eye-opening experience as well. That's awesome. You know, I, I loved 24, and I know some people out there, they're going to say, well, it was a bunch of propaganda, and, and it was. It was definitely propaganda, and a lot of the things they were doing were conditioning people for the things that were to come, but <laughs> I still, I loved it. I never stopped watching it until they came out with a remake, I guess maybe a, a year or two ago, and they went to London, and I was like, okay, story kind of, and just I thought the screenplay, the, the screenwriters just kind of fell off at that point. But I, I've always liked Kiefer Sutherland. Um, I'm probably going to get myself in trouble, but I loved The Lost Boys. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, I know it's not a Christian movie. It's a classic, though. For it him. is. Oh, yeah. But uh, one thing that, that also, I, I know this isn't what we're talking about tonight, but it's really cool because you worked on The Visitation. Yes, I adapted The Visitation by Frank Peretti into a feature film and um you know, it was a, it was more of a lower budget Christian movie and the director was a writer as well and he sort of took over the project and so um I wasn't the only screenwriter on it, but I wrote the original um story from from uh, Peretti's book. And, um, yeah, that was my, that was my first horror film that I got to make. That's awesome. Yeah. The visitation was definitely an interesting film. I'll, I'll definitely say that. Yeah. <laughs> now tonight we're going to be talking about something really cool. Um, first of all, you've written some amazing books and I know you and I, we've kind of been playing tag for a while, trying to get, just get everything set up. Um, I, I definitely wanted to have you on before now, but I'm just, I'm very thankful to have you now, but uh, real quick, uh, you wrote a, a previous series, uh, Chronicles of the Nephilim. And what's really cool about this is it's dominated the top 20 of biblical fiction on Amazon for the past five years. Um, if, if someone's listening right now and they have not heard of this, this series, tell us a little bit about it and then we'll jump into the main, the main topic for tonight. Yeah, sure. Um, Chronicles of Nephilim Boys, about, ah, man, maybe six or so years ago now. Um, you know, I, as a screenwriter, I've never written novels before, but, um, six, seven years ago, I um I started writing a screenplay for I thought this would be a great movie. Um as a matter of fact, the director of Twindle Wars and I were sort of developing it together at first, and then we sort of went uh created we parted creative ways and I continued on writing the the script that I wanted to write. But it was um at that time I thought, you know, no one's ever done the story of Noah. And I started doing this research into the days of Noah. And I know your your listeners are going to be very familiar with this, but the whole idea of Genesis 6 and the sons of God coming down from heaven, mating with the daughters of men, and they bore them Nephilim giants, which were heroes of old. This is all in Genesis 6 and happens before the flood. And I, I'd all, that had always been a passage that I just said, boy, that's weird. 
I'm just a good Christian evangelical. I'm going to avoid that. <laughs> you <Yeah>. know, <laughs> that's too dangerous. That's just too. Da- it sounds mythological or very, very weird spiritual. You know, angels having sex with humans. That doesn't fit well with the typical evangelical sort of perspective, which I come from. Um, and you know, but but then as I looked into it and I discovered Michael Heiser's work, uh, Michael Heiser, whose new book, The Unseen Realm, I I was reading early versions of it, and it opened my mind up. It opened my 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 the the windows of my imagination actually to see a amazing spiritual supernatural warfare um, storyline that was going on in the Bible that I, I really didn't see before. And it centers around this notion of the Nephilim giants and the watchers. And I, and I realized, oh, this isn't just a weird incident occurring in Genesis 6. This is something that that goes throughout the whole text. It's like a thread and it opened up the Bible in a, in a new fresh way for me. And I said, man, I got to tell this story. And so I started writing the script on Noah and, you know, I have have giants and watchers and all this kind of stuff in there, you know, and then a few years later, uh, I was trying to get the, a couple of years later, I was trying to get the, you know, interest in the movie around town and I don't have a lot of connections. So, um, and then I heard that, uh, Darren Aronofsky was making his movie Noah, and oh, I yeah. thought, oh, well, he beat me to the punch. That's fine. Because <laughs> you know, the reality was is I probably couldn't get mine made anyway because it was so expensive, you know. But it inspired me to say, well, I want to beat him. I, I thought, oh, man, he's probably going to – he's probably aware of some of these things that I that I researched. So I got to beat him to the punch. I want to make sure my books – I got to get my story out before he gets this movie out. So I th- said, well – I guess I should write a novel then. And so that's what inspired me and started me on the journey that would soon become eight novels because I, you know, like I said, as I realized uh, I got into this story, I thought, oh my gosh, I, I told the story of Noah. I told this story with these giants. And, you know, in the ancient world, the premise of the whole series is, is sort of like, what if the gods of the ancient world, you know, the gods, people used to believe in the pantheon of gods, uh, many gods and different cities had a patron god over them and all this stuff. What if, what if the gods of the ancient world were real beings. They weren't just mythological creatures, but they're real beings. And and I, ca- I actually kind of got that idea from the Bible itself as I was studying it. And 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 not in a sense of, oh, Pantheon, there's a bunch of gods that are all equal, but rather there are these supernatural divine beings and they're in God's counsel and some of them fell, came to earth. This is all in the Bible and in the, and in other sources that the Bible draws from like the book of Enoch. So I found this stuff out. It was just wild and fascinating. And sure enough, when the movie Noah came out, it, it, it wasn't at all like what I had researched. So it, it wasn't remotely similar to mine. Um, but nevertheless, I got going and then I realized, oh my gosh, this started back earlier in the days of Jared and Enoch before Noah. So I said, well, I got to write the prequel. So I, I can't, you know, the first novel was Noah primeval. And then the second novel was Enoch primordial. And that was a prequel. But then I went on from there to write Gilgamesh immortal, Abraham allegiant, um, and, and, uh, and then after that, the promised land novels, which would be Joshua Valiant, Caleb Vigilant, David Ascendant. So King David and, you know, many people don't realize that Goliath was not the only giant that actually tried to kill David. <laughs> there was, yeah, there was actually, a a um, uh, 
basically a circuit, you know, like an, a, a squad of assassins that may have been hunting him. And, and they're mentioned actually in, in several passages, but there's not a lot of detail. There's no, not much detail on them. So I, what I said was I wanted to retell all the stories in the Bible where giants appear, Nephilim, Rephaim, all these different kinds of giants, clans that many Christians are unaware of. And I want to retell those stories because I thought that this storyline, it's, they're not just this weird anomaly of nature. There's actually they there's actually a spiritual war that's going on that they embody and i wanted to tell that story and that was the that was sort of the essence of the of the novels and and um so all the novels are basically warrior heroes so they're full of action but i also have romance and and um a lot of i basically embed my theological views within the storytelling so i i, I like myself i think of myself as my, my novels are sort of the um the uh, fictional incarnation of, of Michael Heiser's work, you know, because I really drew a lot from him and the divine council and all that stuff. And, and so it, what it, it turned out to be uh, such a, a life changing experience for me because studying the Bible and then putting it into this fictional form. So my goal was, was to, to retell these Bible stories that touch on giants, but I didn't want to. So I had to fill in a lot of you know, the, the Bible mentions giants, but it doesn't always give a lot of details. So I did have to have creative license, fill it in, fill in the in-betweens. But I try, I did so in such a way that it would be completely consistent with what we do know in the Bible. And then I, um, I also brought into this, you know, this watcher paradigm with this notion of these gods of gods over the nations, you know, and, and this was another thing that I discovered in the Bible that was just fascinating where in Deuteronomy 32, it speaks about how God placed um, the nations under the authority of these rebel sons of God as gods. So that, in other words, it's sort of like mankind is so rebellious after the flood, they build the Tower of Babel and they just don't stop with evil. So God says, I'm going to give you over. I'm going to put you under the authority of your pagan gods that are actually demonic beings. And the Bible talks about that. And so I realized that the Bible itself actually talks about the reality of so-called gods, and there's a spiritual demonic reality to them. And that that was that whole world that I wanted to depict, uh, the world that we don't normally see in ours and how that interacts. So I add a fantasy edge to it where, you know, I have some monsters and, and such that show up, but it's all basically embodying that, that same theological storyline that really makes, helps us see the Bible from the viewpoint of ancient Hebrews, how they might have seen it, you know? And like you said, it's, it's just, it's kind of like wildflower, like wildfire on Amazon. And what's really cool, you will, like you said, you take history and you take real elements. You're dealing with nonfiction in your research, and then you're just basically putting a fictional flair to fill in the gaps and adding some narrative to it. Exactly. And you know what? I, I got to tell you something, Justin. I, look, my, my main audience are mostly Christians. You know, I don't write Christian stories, but that's, you know, Christians are the ones who love the Bible and they love reading Bible stories. And that's okay. Um, because I thought that they weren't going to like it because I'm thinking, man, I'm really, I'm really putting in some wild stuff here. Like I have, you know, I have a sea dragon of chaos show up, you know, I have satyrs showing up and, uh, you know, uh, centaurs, things like that, that, that I would think people who, who love the Bible might be offended and think, oh, he's playing with the word of God, you know, but I've been surprised and actually humbled by how many Christians really do get it. And they appreciate the imagination and then they, and they realize, look, this is fiction. It's theological, not, you know, I'm not claiming that. 
that I know what happened historically. I try to make it consistent historically, but by showing the spiritual side of things, I use the genre of fantasy as a means to do that. Christians have been getting it. I've been blown out of the water. I really have. Very few people have reacted negatively. I, I thought they would hate it, hate it, but they, like I said, they they get it, and that's a good sign to me. Well, I'll tell you what. When I think about you mentioned like the satyrs and. Uh, really, as we as we research into just the, the the realm of the supernatural, we find out that there are all types of strange things that were going on. I mean, and still are going on, but even more so, we we learn about a lot of weird stuff happening before the flood, and we we yes. have references to Enoch um, and other books as well. But I say Enoch because it is quoted directly in, in our Bible. But yep. the interesting thing about it, Brian, is that we see. These these fallen angels coming down, and not only were they creating Nephilim by sleeping with women, but they were also creating these other hybrid entities, the, these weird animal-human hybrids. We have evidence of that. Uh, we even have some very strange language that's used in the Book of Enoch that talks about merging plants. They were sinning against the plants and the animals and mankind. Yeah, you're right. And of course, the obvious connection with today, you know, my novels stay in the ancient world. I know that a lot of people like yourself and others write about how it's relevant today and in the future. But I still think that that the ancient world does is a reflection of what even conceptually, even uh, philosophically of what's going on today in the sense of, you know, um, genetic hybrids, uh, you know, playing with DNA, being God, that kind of stuff that man does. So, yeah, it's a very very, very relevant in that sense. And, you know, there's lots of, um, that was the other thing too, you know, you look at the religious mythology and there's lots of hybrid creatures in mythology. And of course we also know hybrid, um, uh, pagan mythology has tons of stories of the gods mating with man. Well, as a Christian, um, uh, you know, actually just as a rational human being, I think that, that if something occurs in the historic, deep historic past, it makes perfect sense to me that different people, if they spread out on the earth from one location and and created their own tribes and built their own societies, just like today, it makes sense that they would take the true story and spin it just like our news does, right? You can't even even the news today is spinning the story. They don't even tell the truth, oh, right? Yeah, everything. So, so of course, every culture is going to have their own version of what really happened, and it's going to be twisted and distorted. And as a Christian, I believe God's revelation is the Bible, so I believe that's the truthful, accurate one, of which the others are mere parodies. And yep. that's sort of my approach to it. That I'm that. So I actually bring in a lot of ancient mythology. One of the novels is called Gilgamesh Immortal, and I retell the story of the famous Babylonian legendary character Gilgamesh, who was the uh, king of Uruk in Mesopotamia, two-thirds God, one-third man, they, he said. And uh, anyway, that's the most ancient hero story that we've found in cuneiform tablets in Mesopotamia. Well, it's actually, if you read, it's, it's got translations you can read now. If you read that text of Gilgamesh, the Epic of Gilgamesh, you'll find that it has, it's, it reads like a modern-day movie. So the storytelling was strong way back then, and I said, i got to retell this. But I found that Gilgamesh also has a connection to, um, I think, to the Bible in a way that many people don't realize. And I'm not going give, to give, give away the uh, farm on that one. It's a, it's a special secret. But um, people might say, well, what does Gilgamesh have to do with the Bible? You'll be surprised. It really has a lot to do with it. One of the elements is he actually was on a search for immortality, and he heard – this was after the flood – and he heard that Noah – 
there was a man who, who had eternal life, and he was the man who survived the flood, Noah. So he goes on a search to find Noah. And of course, what he finds is different than what he realizes. But, you know, that's my, my point is that I, I, I play with all these, you know, pagan mythologies, but I show where they may have been rooted in reality and what that reality would be. Well, you know, it's interesting because when we get into the pagan mythology, like you said, we're dealing with parallels. And I think it's very important as Christians. Matter of fact, I remember uh, there was a, a time I was out shopping with my brother. I think we're at a place called Costco and they had this really cool fold out. It was like a book, but it was a big book, like two feet tall. And it was a fold out timeline, a biblical timeline. But like you had a parallel, you had the biblical timeline, but then like you had these little notches underneath telling you what was going on in the other groups of the world at the same time. And I think that's interesting because as we are biblical researchers and we're learning more and more, it's very important that we dig into history from all the different religions because it helps us better understand the context, understand what was going on in those days, understand who God's people were up against. So I'm right there Amen. with you. I think it's I think it's awesome. And as a researcher, we have to be balanced. And the problem with living in America today is that, and I come from a very uh, conservative uh, evangelical background, but... As I'm learning more in the light of Scripture, it's like I'm understanding things from such a supernatural standpoint now that I would have never understood years ago. So I'm very grateful for this. Um, now, I know tonight we're going to be talking about your latest book, The Dragon King. And uh, what's really cool about this, and, and we're going to talk about dragons. I've got some things I want to throw in there about that. But you're getting into the idea of the storyline of the, of the first emperor of China. But real quick, before we dive in, I just want to make a quick reference here. You worked on this book with Charlie Wynn. Mm -hmm. Now, if, if anybody does not know who Charlie Wynn is, he was the past visual director of Marvel Studios. That's a major accomplishment. Um, I'm sure many of you love the superhero movies out there. Uh, he developed the Avengers, Ant-Man, Captain America, Iron Man, uh, Thor, and Guardians of the Galaxy. So, I mean, for you to be working with Charlie Wynn, that's a major accomplishment. Um, just to, to uh, man, I, I'm a superhero geek when it comes down to, to these movies. I'll just, I'll, I'll admit it. Go to the website, um, Chronicles of the Chronicles of the Watchers.com or Gadawa.com, just my name, Gadawa.com. Go to the Dragon King and I have artwork. Charlie did a couple of drawings for it because that's what he does. Uh, he's a great storyteller too, though. We developed the story together and then I wrote the novel, but um, he also did some artwork that's on the website uh, for people to, to take a look at. Yeah. It's just amazing. I mean, dude, he 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 and his team would develop the look of the movie, and so they would even draw individual scenes or moments in that that would capture the essence of the scene, and you'll see those moments on screen. Like I saw the original drawing, you know, in the Avengers, um, the uh, the latest, not the latest one, the the first one, you know, with the big dragons in the sky. Which, by the way, the dragons in the sky, the big mechanical dragons, that's the Leviathan. Um, but uh, 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 you know, when, when you, what was I going to say about that? So, oh, so yeah. So I saw that, you know, that shot where they come around and all the Avengers are standing there looking up, you know, and, and it's like, I saw the drawing he did long before they shot it and they shot it to make it look like that. In other words, <laughs> those guys, the visual guys really were influential. And yeah, so I thought, I'd love to tell a story with this guy. And he actually was the guy who came to me with the story. Cause he said, you know what? He, he goes, we're, you know, talking, Hey, what? we got to work on a project together because we, we were – he was reading my Chronicles of the Nephilim, and that's like, oh, you know. And he said, I, I've always wanted to tell the story of the first emperor of China. And he, and he told me 
and I go, dude, I know about that because I've done my own reading on it as well. And he said to me, he goes, because, you know, like um, he's around the 200 BC and, you know, uh, right around that time period, his before the first emperor, they were warring states, five, I don't know, six or so warring states for for literally, you know, a thousand years. And he was the first guy to unify China in many ways, unify language, etc. But of course, unfortunately, he was also on the search for immortality, and he almost bankrupted his treasury, and he was actually a cruel tyrant. And even the Chinese will say that, and, and uh, sadly, you know, sadly so, but that makes for a very fascinating drama, right? And he, but he said, you know, from a Christian perspective, he said um, two things that one is that that was right around the time period where the dragon, it was his sort of emp- emperorship that made the dragon the, the ubiquitous symbol um, uh, in China, right? I mean, they'd always use that as a symbol, but it became the universal symbol. And secondly, before his time period, uh, the ancient Chinese used to worship a single god who, who forbid images. And it, what's interesting is we're talking thousands of years before Christ. In that time period, no other religion worshipped God without images except for Israel, right? And so uh, – but but the, the Chinese were completely cut off from the West, right? So how did that happen? Well, modern-day Chinese Christians are, all, are always trying to – they're trying to – tell their own people that, you know, many Chinese say, oh, Christianity is a Western religion, right? And the Chinese Christians are saying, no, no. <clears throat> As a matter of fact, we come from the Tower of Babel. And, and they suggest that they say, look, uh, we were worshiping the single God without images long before Christian missionaries ever got there. Wait, wait, you, know, that- you know what's crazy about this is the, the book of Job. Uh, Job was, uh, he was like one of the highest regarded men of the East, Oh, interesting. In traditional history, uh, well, first of all, let me finish that, that the Christians say that, that so the Chinese basically came from the original Tower of Babel's dispersion, and they just, they kept their religion a little bit more pure than the other faiths did. That's their point. And it wasn't by any means, it wasn't a perfectly pure religious faith. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is they had their echoes of of Yahweh, even within their most ancient worship, but though a fallen away, you know, kind of perspective. And um, so there's that element of it. And, but also traditional history says, you know, that, that we really didn't, the West didn't really have contact with China and the Far East, um, you know, until much later on, you know, I don't know, like, like, um, uh, you, you know, like the first century or something like that. And certainly Marco Polo was the, you know, the big one that sort of brought them, the two East and West together. But, but the interesting thing is, is that um, I found out that there are Oracle bones in China that show that they actually had connection with King Cyrus of Babylon, which is during the time of Daniel. So what happened when we were starting to do this research, okay, we're starting out, you know, first Chinese emperor, you know, very interesting, very fascinating. There's some spiritual connections. But we said, you know what, we kind of wanted to bring a little bit of the East and West, both sides so that, you know, audience-wise, you know, people can appreciate it. And I said, well, what's, what was going on at this time in 200 BC? Looked into history, found out truly an amazing time period where the Seleucid Greeks were in control of, of Mesopotamia and such. And that was the time of Antiochus the Great. And so you have this Hellenistic Greek kingdom and, and they had ties back to the Babylonian Magi 
that Daniel taught, right? So you start to see, oh my gosh, there's some interesting connections going on. And what if, what if Daniel, who affected the, the Magi, um, and then the Magi then had that that sort of um, uh, tra- tradition of of Hebrew teaching, even though they weren't pure, you know, they were obviously still Babylonian, but they they were taught all this stuff about the Messiah King and such because they were the ones that came during the birth of Jesus, right? So these guys are looking for Messiah, looking for the Emperor from heaven. Meanwhile, over in the east, this Chinese Emperor is claiming to be. Uh, the emperor of heaven, right? So it's all these weird, interesting connections. So we came up with the storyline and it's roughly this. It's about 220 BC and the ancient Western empire is crumbling. The Greek empire is crumbling. So in a desperate bid to save his throne, the Greek king over Babylon sends his son, who's a dishonored warrior named Antiochus, same name, into the mysterious land of the Far East to capture a mythical creature that will give him absolute power, a dragon. So, you know, they heard that there's dragons over there. If I can get a dragon, that will give me power. So that's how we sort of bring the East meets West together. And the journey is this Greek warrior who goes into this strange land, falls in love, of course, with a concubine, obviously, right? And got to have that. Got to have that. Yeah. <laughs> but in the meantime, they also find out that the Western notion of the dragons are not the, the same as the Eastern notion of the dragons. And there's something deeper, something serpentine beneath this notion going on here. And that's kind of that's kind of the heart of the story. And oh, and I, I brought in a mag- the Magi into it because, you know, Magi were in Babylon. And, and I said, well, what if what if, uh, you know, this Greek warrior was good friends with one of the Magi? Magi were like priests but they were also like wise men, you know, so they, they were they had teaching in astrology and all kinds of stuff. And they may have even had teaching in, in battle and war. So what if he brings a magi over with him and, there, and then this connection starts to occur? And, and um, I was blown away to find in our research, we also find, found far more of connection to the Bible than I had even anticipated. I wasn't looking for it. It it surprised us. And so we we put that in there as well, that stuff that connects up with the Ark of the Covenant and such. So so we've got some really cool stuff going on in there. People are going to love it. And it's a really short, it's a relatively brief novel. It, it, it reads quick. Now, let me just ask uh, the title, The Dragon King. Obviously, we know there's a lot of talk with dragons and Chinese culture and, and even throughout the history. Anybody who's visited China or seen any videos or pictures from China a lot of dragon symbology. Yeah. Um, we, we obviously in the Bible we see that Satan is called a dragon. Yes. Um, now tell us a little bit what you found out in your research about dragons. Uh, first of all, you know they are serpentine, and like you said, our our notion of the dragon is different than the Eastern notion. Theirs is a more positive notion, um, but. But I also think that that they have a connection, and the Western notion is these you know large reptiles with scales that breathe fire, you know like they they look like dinosaurs and but the Eastern notion is not necessarily the same, although I bring that into the story by the way, but the Eastern notion is more like they're long serpentine water creatures rather than fire creatures, so in some ways they're kind of opposites, but I believe they're still spiritually connected, you know what I'm saying so so that's now wait, you, you said water creatures. Now, uh, one of the interesting things, I'm, I'm working on a show. I don't know when it's going to air yet, but we're going to be getting into water spirits. Um, you think there's a connection there? 
I don't know. Could be. Could be. I just know that a lot of the imagery and a lot of the notions of dragons in their art that you see is it's it's water oriented as opposed to fire like we have in the West. That's that's all. I mean, how deep that goes. I'm sure there's a lot a lot deeper than than I than I went. The latest Jurassic Park movie, Jurassic World, we see this giant dinosaur like creature that it's kind of like the demonic uh, dinosaur version of a Shamu or a whale, um, <laughs> and it just it comes up out of the water and t- to feed, of course. But my brother said, "Oh, that's a Leviathan." Uh, he just kind of assumed that's what they were going for there. But you believe the Leviathan is a dragon? Yeah, I, I know there are different different interpretations within the Christian within the Christian world um, about this. Some believe that Leviathan is a dragon or a sea dinosaur or you know whatever a whale or sea monster something like that. But based on my research into the notion of Leviathan and its interconnected notions with um, with ancient Near Eastern cultures around uh, Israel and such, um, there's a lot of passages in the Bible on Leviathan, and um, I. I'm convinced that it's it's a mythical creature that the writers are using as a symbol for chaos. And that is, you know, when you read passages like in Psalm 72, I think, where it talks about crossing the Red Sea, you know, and, and it's it's talking about God establishing his co- His covenant with Moses. This covenant, God speaks in covenants, right? So it's, covenant is a big thing. It's like the heavens and the earth type of thing. And so it says that, he, you know, when they're crossing the Red Sea, God pushes back the waters. He crushes the heads, plural, of Levi. Leviathan. And these are these this is common terminology that was, that's used in the ancient Near East that that describes when a god establishes his order, his covenanted order, uh, he pushes back the chaos, he pushes back the, the seas, he pushes back um, uh, you know, the, the, the sea dragon. And the sea dragon in many cultures, Babylon, Canaan, all represents chaos. So that's how my understanding of Leviathan. And Leviathan does show up in the Dragon King, by the way. And Leviathan was one of my main creatures throughout the whole Chronicles and the Nephilim series as well. So, um, But you know, needless to say, even if you believe it's literal, I, I still think that it's still got a symbolic element going on in Scripture that communicates the spiritual reality. Well, there, there has to be some sort of a spiritual reality behind Leviathan, but I tend to lean to the side that it is an actual creature. Um, I, I just I go back to Job 41, and, uh, and this is where God is rebuking Job. He says, Canst thou draw out Leviathan with a hook, or his tongue with a cord, which thou lettest down? It seems that God's telling Job, like it was common knowledge that there was a Leviathan, and God had the power to draw him out and destroy him, basically. Sure, sure. And I'm fine with that. You know, uh, although one of the things that I found the most fascinating in, in my research, and I mentioned it, but I'll, um, I'll, I'll quote you the, the exact passage since we're talking about that now. Um, and that is the, um, the, the, the passage where in Psalm 74 is what it, is where I was referring to Psalm 74, uh, 12 through 17, where it's talking about, um, div, you know, you divided the sea with your might. You broke the heads of sea monsters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. The word, the word there is plural heads, plural, not singular, but Leviathan is singular. And so what's interesting is it's a, I, I think it's hinting at the fact that Leviathan has multiple heads. And it's interesting because Leviathan had multiple heads in Canaan as well. And think about it. 
Leviathan or the sea dragon in Revelation 12 has seven heads. So there is something interesting going on there that I think um, is quite fascinating. And I bring that into the story a little bit as well. But I exploit a lot more in Chronicles of the Nephilim. But he does show up in, in the Dragon King. Now, you mentioned that the Dragon King, who the book was based off of, he was on a quest to find eternal life or to live forever on this earth. Yes, it was fascinating. He's looking for the elixir of immortality, they call it. And, you know, it's really fascinating. By the way, this this was the emperor. People will have heard about this guy. He's the guy who finished building the Great Wall of China. He didn't start it, but he he's the one that's known for it because they had, you know, they had built little portions, but then they just stopped. And he was the one that really built it, right? And he was also the guy that built those, you've seen the documentaries where they show these armies of terracotta warriors, Chinese warriors, where there's just th- thousands of them. He's the guy who did that because he wanted to, if, if he did die, you know, uh, he wanted to have these guys guarding his, his, him in the spirit world. But also in the meantime, you can find free documentaries on YouTube about this guy, this emperor. He's fascinating. Uh, so he had all his magi or his mat magicians and, and scholars trying to create the elixir of, of immortality. And so what's interesting in that time period, their understanding of things like quicksilver, mercury, right, and and uh, other things like arsenic, they thought that these substances, substances, if ingested in small amounts over a period of time, would actually uh, benefit towards you living longer. Which is really ironic because they were poisoning him. They were poisoning the emperor without knowing it. And this <laughs> emperor is known to have gone crazy at the end of his life, which is also a fascinating, dramatic thing. And, and, and the, before he died, he was on the search. He went to the ocean on, in the search of a giant sea monster. I'm kidding you. I'm not kidding you. So I said, well, but what if he actually came across a real sea monster? You know, so right, I, I right. had a little bit of imagination, but but it still stays true to the to the historical story. So yeah, he was just fascinating. And so he, you know, and he also sent men out. This is another thing too. He sent men out to find other wise men. And that's, that's where I thought, well, what if he sent someone that, and they went to the far west like Babylon, in order to capture Magi to bring them back. And that's what we have in our story then, see? And so, yeah, he was quite an interesting guy, gives a lot of drama for a villain in this story. <laughs> no, that, it sounds awesome. And one of the cool things that I'm seeing here is that this is the first book in the new series, Chronicles of the Watchers. Now, I just I want to break this down real quick. This new series, uh, Chronicles of the Watchers, it charts the influence of spiritual principalities and powers over the course of human history. Also, the kingdoms of man in service to the gods of the nations at war. What can you tell us about this? How does, first of all, how does the dragon king tie into the watchers? Well, what if, what if this, this whole notion of the, the change of worship from a single god to many gods, the change of China to being more under the form of the dragon, what if that is, does have satanic origin, which I, I think it does spiritually, but how that plays out, who knows? But that's the premise of it. And so the watchers over, over China— uh, what would they be like? I bring them into this story a little bit. And of course, you know, your listeners will know if you've read the book of Daniel, this is very, very biblical. I mean, you know, Deuteronomy 32 says God places the nations, the, the pagan nations under the authority of these fallen sons of God, these divine beings. And then later on in Daniel, we read about the 
prince or, you know, that's a spiritual authority, the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece fighting with Michael, the prince of Israel. So you've got these notions that when nations are at war, so are the spiritual heavenlies. And so I'm probably going to go down the path of probably doing one of the novels will be about Daniel and and, uh, what was going on back then and um, maybe some other locations as well. But uh, yeah, so that's, I call that the watcher paradigm, the notion that there are uh, the biblical notion that there are these spiritual principalities and powers that are behind the earthly powers. And Paul writes about this in the New Testament, doesn't he? Right? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Our war is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers in the heavenly places. And he wasn't saying we war against demons, you know, like, you know, demons are just the disembodied spirits of the Nephilim looking for hosts. That's not the battle he's talking about. (laughs) What he's talking about is he's writing to Christians who are being persecuted by Rome and all over the world or all over the Roman Empire. And he's basically telling them, don't worry that these these kings, these Roman leaders, there are powers behind them. Those are our true enemies, not, you know, not just these these human Romans who are who are persecuting you. Right. So he's saying that there's power and authority behind these. And that's the spiritual warfare that was going on. And so that's been my goal all along from the Chronicles of Nephilim to the Chronicles of the Watchers is to sort of depict that spiritual warfare and not in a not to be honest not in a frank Peretti way where it's like it's demons you know like a demon of lust and a demon of obesity and all this it's more about the bigger picture the um like like kings you know the sons of god are angelic authorities they're they're not demons looking for bodies to inhabit they're they're actually authorities who have a plan for for taking over the world and and what is that about and that's kind of where I focused. Very nice. One thing that really sticks out to me here is that you get into how the kingdoms of man are in service to the gods of the nations at war. Um, many people don't understand that many of the, the ancient and historic wars, when you're dealing with these pagan nations, war was a ritual. It was a rite. And they're not only out there to battle, but they're killing people in the name of their gods. They're shedding blood almost as a ritualistic sacrifice unto their gods. Yes, yes, absolutely. You know, modern man, I think we're really arrogant because we're post-enlightened. So, uh, you know, we're very heavily influenced by a bigoted spiritual view of materialism, actually, that negates spirituality. And even Christians have been affected by it. So I have to admit that even myself, I feel like I have been affected by it. And I've had to work through that. But my point here is that is that we've been so brainwashed and and indoctrinated by materialism, our culture, you know, that it just sounds like, oh, that's just silly myths. They were battling and they were at war uh, and they just believe that all, all this God stuff that we know now is just a bunch of silly stuff. Well, I don't think that's true. I think that there's a spiritual reality behind these gods and there's there was stuff going on there. How exactly what it looked like, I, I admit I don't entirely know, and, and we only get glimpses of it in the Bible. But I think that that it's 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 arrogance and it's actually ignorance to just sort of say, Oh yeah, the ancient mythology is just beliefs, it, none of it was real. That's not true. The Bible takes it for real, right? I mean, Bible says in in uh, Deuteronomy that that uh, Moses says, you know, when they get into when they're in the promised land and they are um, worshiping false gods, the Jews, you know, he says, look, these Canaanite gods. He says the the gods that you're sacrificing to are demons. Shadim is the Hebrew word, demons or demonic, and and so in other words, he's saying it's not just that they're they're uh, fanciful un non-existent things. He's saying 
their demonic reality that you're sacrificing to. So you're right. When these nations, everything they engaged in, everything was 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 a part of their religious uh, duty to their gods, as well as their worship to the gods. And so they would sacrifice human beings. They would, you know, and all of them understood that when the when a, a nation beat another nation, their God was then over that God in oh, terms yeah. of power and authority. And that's more than just conceptual. That's more than just philosophically. There's a spiritual reality going on that the Bible actually affirms. That's amazing. You're right on. I mean, you're, you're, you're nailing it right there. I totally agree. Um, one thing I want to kind of point out here as well, um, when we were dealing with, with the wars, uh, the nations at war, um, even, even when we look at ancient Israel, because ancient Israel, if people remember correctly, we go back to the idea of the Ark of the Covenant on multiple occasions had to go out to battle with them. Yes. And this is really crazy because other nations, when they would go out to battle, they would take certain relics or antiquities, if you will. They would carry those out, sometimes idols, sometimes just supernatural relics. They would carry those out to war because, again, the war was part of their ritual. It was a rite that they performed unto their gods. And one of the things that really blows my mind, I, I guess this was last year, I did an interview with Michael Herr. And we were talking about some of the music industry, and he talked about Metallica. He says people don't realize how satanic Metallica is. He said he, he went through some of the albums, but one album in particular he pointed out, but he said uh, actually it was several albums leading up to what was called the Black Album. And many people you know, that, that grew up in our, in our generation, they'll remember the Black Album, Inner Sandman, Nothing Else Matters, all those. Um, and, and as a kid, I used to listen to it as well. But what was interesting is that uh, these handful of albums up into that point, and including that album, were basically singing these these anthems of praise and the struggles of Lucifer as the ultimate warlord. Wow. I mean, this is heavy stuff. This is heavy duty. And, and he broke this down. Um, I had to cut out some of the stuff because it got pretty graphic as we got into some of their newer albums. But I, I just have to say, I mean, Lucifer is being depicted by Metallica in multiple albums as the ultimate warlord who has feelings and emotions just like we do, and he struggles and suffers pain. Now, this takes me back to the Old Testament. Uh, actually, this takes me back to Enoch, which I have no problem referring to Enoch as Old Testament because it was in the same time frame. But mm-hmm. uh, what's interesting is that we see that the fallen angels or the watchers, they would mourn the death of their children. Uh, they hated the fact that the Nephilim, their, their, their hybrid offspring, when they died because they were half human, half angel, it says that they mourned the death. They felt pain and agony when their children, when their Nephilim children, their sons and daughters, when they died. So it's just kind of, it's really interesting. And we know there's historical reference to the giants being warlords and mighty yep. men of old. Uh, King James says men of renown. So, mm-hmm. and then you go to the Greek mythology and what do you have? You have warriors. They're warriors and their, their human armies were led by Nephilim. Mm-hmm. Major mm-hmm. warlord. So I love the fact that you, as you're getting into this new series, I love that you're tying in, uh, to the people as they're in service to the gods of the nations at war. Uh, just awesome. I, one thing I may not have mentioned in, about the Dragon King, there will be giants. They're not as they're not as prevalent as in the Chronicles of the Nephilim, but there are giants in there, so fear not. <laughs> well, anybody who's read your books, obviously, that's not a surprise. <laughs> they would not expect anything less. Um, now, one other thing I wanted to drop in here um, when we're dealing, you made the comment about when a nation, when a pagan nation would 
overturn another pagan nation, uh, the principality would now spread to that area. Now, this is really interesting. Um, obviously, the principalities, and, and I've broken this down in the past, where you have what we, even biblically speaking, we have what we could assume to be reference to a hierarchy. Um, obviously, uh, I did a show with Michael Heiser a couple weeks back, and we talked about the divine council. Uh, but even with demons, there's a hierarchy of demons. We, we not only see this in different religions, such as witchcraft and voodoo, uh, where they're, you know, they believe in the hierarchy of demons and spirits, but in the idea of principalities, even if you look at principalities as a modern term, um, there's still an idea of a hierarchy. Uh, even with governments, there's a hierarchy. And, and, and the principalities in the spiritual realm, they're just spiritual governments per se. They're governing spirits or governing demonic fallen angels. Um, people have this idea that this stuff is just Old Testament. You know, oh, well, well what, you know, that was back then. You know, we're living yeah. in, a, in a modern world. We're living in the yeah. time of rationalism. But the Bible never says that these things stopped. And furthermore, even in the New Testament that you so boldly said earlier, Paul made the point, Paul referenced back to the principalities and the powers of wickedness. So there's really, the, the Bible says that this is how things are in this realm. It doesn't say that this is how things were. It says this is how things are. So I love the fact that you're tying this into your novels because people are going to read your novels and they're going to get a really awesome narrative uh, with a fictional storyline, but it's all based for the most part on nonfiction research. I mean, and yes. you do a very good job of researching, obviously, just going through what you've sent me. I mean, you really take time to validate your sources to make things historically accurate. Yes, as a matter of fact, one of the things I did when I first started the series, and at first I did it, I was I was wondering if it would work. And that was, I, I, I said, man, this stuff is so wild, you know, to, to any normal Christian, that, that they're going to read this stuff and go, he's just making this wild stuff up. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to write an appendix at the end of each novel and give my biblical and historical research. And the reason why I did that was because I used, I love Michael, I loved Michael Crichton. He's one of my favorite novelists. And of course he was also a screenwriter. That's why I loved him. He had, he had that dual reality going on and he would always do that in his books. He would, you know, he'd have this science fiction story, but then he would have an appendix explaining the science behind the fiction. Right? So I decided to do that with Chronicles of the Nephilim just on the off chance that, you know, those who need that, will be encouraged and, and they'll have it. And if you don't, you, that's fine. You just like the novel. Well, it turns out that I've had so many people tell me they love the appendixes as much as they love the novel. Some of them like them more. So I ended up gathering all the appendices from all eight novels into one book itself of just the research, just the historical biblical research. And it's called When Giants Were Upon the Earth. And that's also available on Amazon. All my books are available exclusively on Amazon, audio, Kindle, and paperback. But you know, it's ended up being one of the better sellers in the series. <laughs> so, yeah, I found that people really, even though they love the fiction, they want, they're really hungry to know where to get this stuff from, and they love it. They love it. So I'm just, I'm do, on my next series, on this series, The Dragon King, I, I chose not to do that, but I'm, I'm going to continue to do it on, on my other novels because <laughs> people love it. No, that's awesome. Now, I'm going to kind of throw a curveball in here. Uh, I know we didn't talk about this before the show, but in dealing with the Dragon King, obviously you had to do a lot of research into the history, and you've already made the point that before the Dragon King, the actual the historical person, before he was the king or the emperor, there was a different religion. So we had a, a total pole shift, if you will, when he became the emperor. 
what types of rituals, I mean, what, what type of religious practices uh, was he bringing upon the land? Well, it's it's a varied one, you know, and and a lot of it is is connected with Taoism. This was the time around when Taoism and Buddhism was becoming very influential. So, you know, it's sort of a mixture of all kinds of things, you know. But basically, it's like the the uh, ancestral spirits was also then they would worship ancestral spirits before they would you know give homage to their ancestors, but then it became more spiritual. And also multiple deities. Interestingly, they had a, a divine council notion. They called them the inferior deities uh, that were around the throne of Shangdi. Shangdi was the ultimate god, right? Um, but anyway, then they turned away from Shangdi and just focused on the inferior deities. And those are like like any other religion, you know, gods of the woods, gods of the forest and the rivers and all this kind of stuff. Well, I don't that that kind of goes into the whole, and I'm going to be very careful how I say this because I, I, you know, the more I learn about Native American history and Native American yeah. Indians, there are some of them that were worshiping Yahweh. I know that's going to be a shock to some people. Um, I, we don't have time to cover that, but there were a, a lot. I mean, up until recently, I assumed that Native American religion was all pagan. Um, yeah, and, yeah, and really, too. and much of it is. I'll be the first to say the majority, from what I've studied, most Native American religions dealing with Native American Indians and, and the various tribes, they were involved in some very strange paganism. But there were some tribes that, this is mind-blowing, but they worshipped Yahweh. They even used the... I've, I've heard uh, several references now to where they would use the, the terminology Yahuwah, which that goes right back wow. to the Hebrew. And, and, and you hear these drum circles where they're dancing and singing praises unto Yahuwah, Yahuwah. It, 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 it's mind-blowing. Um, wow. But, and, and obviously that's something that, that I'll probably want to talk about on another show. People are going to write me. I know it. They're going to say, okay, prove this. <laughs> yeah. But the majority of the Native American religions, they, they kind of go parallel with what you just mentioned, uh, sure. dealing with the spirit of this, the spirit of that, ancestral spirits. Um, just very much paganism. And we also know that there were multiple Indian tribes that have history of working and living, um, working with and living among giants, the six fingered, double yes. rows of teeth, red hair, um, bronze and brass jewelry. So elongated skulls. I mean, the list goes on, but it's like, it's all going back to fallen angel religions. Mm-hmm. And again, I love talking about it. I think it's a, it's food for thought. It causes people to be challenged in what they believe. And at the end of the day, we need to know what we believe, but then we need to know why we believe what we believe. And, you know, I, I love studying. Uh, one thing I like about your books is that you do a lot of research. Uh, I'm a research-prone person, so uh, we really we have to go through things with a fine-tooth comb and get the best information possible uh, before we land our stance. But at the same time, be willing to give that information, which is something that you do with your books. Um, I just want to say this again about your books. It's awesome because you're putting truth in your books, even though you've created a, a, a fictional narrative, it's really awesome because you're putting truth in there and it's causing people, even if they're not Christians, they're able to read your books, be totally entertained, but then get truth embedded into their mind. So, I mean, it, I think it's awesome what you're doing. Uh, it's, it's really cool that you that you got connected with Charlie Wynn. Awesome stuff. Anything else you want to tell us about The Dragon King before we wrap it up? It's only available at Amazon on Kindle and paperback, and it will be on audiobook um, through Amazon as well and Audible probably within a couple weeks, within a few weeks. But don't don't expect a, an autographed copy because I couldn't even get an autographed copy. <laughs> I, I do not keep them at my house because they're a pain in the butt to keep inventory, so I don't have any to send out. <laughs> well, I'm just going to say Gary Wayne and Tex Mars – 
sent me autographed copies of their books. Just throwing it out there. Love you, Gary. I love you, Tex. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) But no, uh, I got to say, though, you had this book shipped to me. It was like overnighted practically. I had it. uh, You sent me an email. I gave you my address. And then, boom, I had the book. Um, obviously it was being shipped from a state very close to mine, but I did notice that when it came in that it was being shipped from a distributor rather than from you, but awesome book. I mean, good quality, good, good quality, uh, paperback, a really nice artwork on here. And, uh, man, I'm excited to get through this. Um, just when I first heard what the book was about, uh, being a history buff, I was like, yes, got it. Got to read this. And, uh, I definitely want to get copies of your other books as well, man. I need a Brian Godawa library, bro. Cause I want to go through all your books and uh, then have you back on to talk about some of the specifics from your other books. Sounds good, man. Awesome. Well, Brian, thank you so much for coming on The Fourth Watch. Man, it's always awesome talking to other researchers and believers who are doing something to make an impact. So thank you for all that you do. Man, God bless you, brother. Have a great night. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, that was a lot of fun, and it's such a blessing to see that there are believers in Hollywood who are working in various ways to make an impact. It's also cool to have a show every once in a while that's not so heavy, but just as interesting and engaging. But now I want to move us into some spiritual food as we begin tonight's Bible study segment. I am always so excited to explore the Word of God together. Tonight I want to talk about a vital scenario that we're all faced with on a daily basis, and for some more than others. This is a topic that hits home with me and truly resonates with my spirit. You see, our lives are filled with constant decisions that we have to make. Some are huge and have massive impact, while others are minute and don't really make waves. But oftentimes, we tend to make what's known as circumstantial decisions. And this isn't always a bad thing, but on the other hand, it's not always a good thing. I mean, sure, we need to evaluate the circumstances, but just because the circumstances appear to be favoring a particular decision does not always mean that it's God's will. Now, this is definitely a discussion that will be controversial to some of you, but if you'll just listen with an open mind and really consider the context of the scripture we'll be studying tonight, I believe you'll be blessed, and furthermore, this will encourage you into better developing your prayer life. There was a man I know who is indeed a man of God, absolutely loves the Lord, and he's even involved in ministry. He was single at the time of the story many years ago, and he had met a woman at his church who professed Christ, and they seemed to have many things in common. She was actively involved in the church, and the pastor even encouraged my friend to date her. Now, circumstantially, things all appeared perfect, and having his friends and even his pastor giving their encouragement and support in the situation carried even more weight in his decision-making. Some of you are listening and thinking, okay, everything sounds great. There were no red flags. What's the problem, Justin? Well, the two were married, and after a short time, my friend found out that she was having an affair on him. There was no mixed signals involved. There were no obvious marital problems on the surface, but she was sleeping with multiple men who were her friends. Of course, my friend was devastated, and she was pretty nonchalant about it all. The fact is, she didn't think it was a big deal. She had been having some of these sexual relationships before she even met my friend, and she just counted it as normal behavior. Of course, he divorced her. But the moral of the story is very clear. Just because things seem circumstantially right on the surface does not mean that they're God's will to walk in those doors. All lights may look green, but we're living in a fallen world 
with much deception, and the enemy has incredible tactics. As a matter of fact, the enemy even holds the power to show somebody the kingdoms of this world in a moment of time. Luke chapter 4, verse 5. And if the enemy can show someone the kingdoms of this world in just a moment of time, you better believe that would include the ability to project false circumstances in order to deceive you in your decision making. Now, I'm not saying it's always the devil, so let's not get it twisted. But I'm saying that it's absolutely imperative that we are taking all things to the Lord in prayer, despite the circumstantial appeal that may exist. And no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. 2 Corinthians 11.4 Things may appear to be godly on the surface. They may appear that God has his hand of blessing upon the whole circumstance. But we have to remember the enemy and his fallen angels, they will appear to be angels of light and ministers of righteousness. I can't tell you how many stories that I've heard from brothers and sisters in Christ where they made rational decisions or seemingly rational decisions because everything looked good on the surface and even appeared as if they would be foolish to make any other decision than the one they made. And so many times those seemingly blessed circumstances and decisions turned out to be nothing less than toxic. So tonight I want to examine a passage of scripture where a man of God was in a rough situation and he had a particular circumstance arise that seemed to be a good blessing provided by God on the surface. Even his friends were telling him that God has set this opportunity before him. But the amazing thing we're going to see here is that this man of God did not act based on circumstances, nor did he act based on the opinions of his trusted friends. Of course, we're talking about David, who was recorded in Scripture as being a man after God's own heart. And this story takes place before David was king. And the adventure specifically takes place in the biblical records of 1 Samuel. I'd like to give a little backstory for those who may not be familiar with the relationship between King Saul and David. At one time, King Saul loved David so much, he actually considered him one of his sons. David was an outstanding musician and would even play the harp for Saul to calm down the spiritually challenged king. But King Saul didn't even know who David was until David stepped up and killed Goliath. And if you remember correctly, this happened back when Saul's army was standing around, shaking in their boots with fear. Nobody was willing to stand up to Goliath, but here comes a little shepherd boy, David, and he lays him out and cuts his head off. Saul was so impressed that he set young David up to be the head of the men of war. Saul began loving him, and David became best friends with Saul's son, Jonathan. David was practically Saul's son, as we stated earlier. But David was promised by God to be the next king through the prophet Samuel. And people began liking David more than they liked Saul. Word began to get back around the city and Saul didn't like it. And on top of it all, Saul began rebelling against God and he was rebelling against the leadership of the prophet Samuel. Now, once Saul felt that David was a threat to his kingship, he set out to kill David. This is a great story to really dig into and I definitely encourage you to study it deeper. But fast forward now, David is on the run from Saul and his men. He knows that they seek to take his life. David has a small group of men who fled with him, but Saul had the forces of his army and he had unlimited resources as king, as well as having spies who were out scouting ahead for him. We're basically dealing with an elaborate and tactical manhunt and Saul was hot on the trail of David. Now let's go right to it. First Samuel chapter 24, starting in verse two. 
Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men upon the rocks of the wild goats. So right away, we see Saul had been tipped off and he was headed out with 3,000 of the best choice soldiers. You see, these soldiers would have been strategically hand-selected from the entire army of ancient Israel. These would have been the absolute best, the most tactical and the most skilled mercenaries in all the land. You see, Saul didn't want to take any chances here because he knew that David was a warrior. But most importantly, Saul knew that David had the Lord on his side. Talk about entering into dangerous territory. Now, verse three, and he came to the sheepcoats, by the way. Where was a cave? And Saul went in to cover his feet. And David and his men remained in the sides of the cave. Now, let me paint this picture for you real quick. Saul and his men came upon a cave with sheep coats. Sheep coats were safety pins that had been built for sheep, which were usually made out of piles of stones and even thorns. These would oftentimes be built near entrances to caves. So Saul went in to the cave to cover his feet. Now, what does it mean to cover one's feet? This is interesting, and it's a widely disputed term among scholars because it only shows up twice in Scripture in a similar context. And some consider this to be a very questionable context, even at that. I don't believe it's as questionable as people say it is. I don't want to take too much time on this, but the two popular views are that Saul first went into the cave to squat down and use the bathroom, and then the other view is that Saul had gone into the cave to take a nap because he was tired from traveling. Now, I tend to think that it's pretty obvious that Saul was using the bathroom because one of the Hebrew words has a side definition that references to defecate. But regardless of that, Saul was also on a bloodthirsty mission and time was of the essence. Do we really think that a king, a warlord, was going to take time to nap when he was out looking for David? I don't think so. Regardless of what Saul was doing, he took a quick break to enter into this cave in an act that totally let his guard down. And the text tells us specifically that David and his men were right inside the walls of that very cave, watching Saul as he went inside to cover his feet. It doesn't get more clear than this. And this is fascinating. So David and his men literally have a front row seat to King Saul letting his guard down. And that's what's so vital that we need to see here. The circumstances. The circumstances are so important to understand. The very man who is hunting them is now right in front of them, squatting down in a cave with his guard completely down. The circumstances are seemingly in David's favor, right? I mean, it would appear that God had delivered Saul into David's hands in this very act, just so David could kill the madman and end this once and for all. I mean, doesn't that seem legit based on the circumstances? But here's where it gets real. Verse four, and the men of David said unto him, Behold, the day of which the Lord said unto thee, Behold, I will deliver thine enemy into thine hand, that thou mayest do to him as it shall seem good unto thee. Then David arose and cut off the skirt of Saul's robe privily. This is awesome. So David's men, who he loved and trusted, are declaring unto David that God has set this all up for David. So they're saying God has indeed orchestrated all of this in order to deliver Saul into your hands so that you can do whatever you want to do to him. David's men are in essence saying that God has provided for you to kill King Saul. 
Now, on the surface, or circumstantially speaking, it definitely would appear that God was giving David the green light to take Saul's life. And obviously, that would lead to become the next king. But as we're about to see, it was not, in fact, God's will for David to kill King Saul. David, being filled with wisdom and being led by God, chose instead to sneak up on the king and cut off a piece of his robe without being detected. Now, verses 5 and 6. And it came to pass afterward that David's heart smote him because he had cut off Saul's skirt. And he said unto his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing unto my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch forth mine hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. So you see, ladies and gentlemen, David was a man after God's own heart. 1 Samuel 13, 14. David knew that there was a time that God had anointed Saul as king. And David was still committed to Saul as his king and his master, even though Saul had turned on God and even turned on David in the mix. David was thinking deeper than the surface. And I should probably remind everyone that David had an amazing prayer life. If you're not familiar with David's prayer life, just study the Psalms of David. David's heart was hurting just for cutting off the skirt of Saul's robe. That's how sensitive David was. Now, verse 7. So David stayed his servants with these words and suffered them not to rise against Saul. But Saul rose up out of the cave and went on his way. So David commanded his men to let Saul escape their hands. We'll get back to this in a minute. I bet many of you are wondering, why did David cut the skirt off of Saul's robe? Well, as the story continues, as soon as Saul made his way back towards his men out of the cave, David came running out and he cried unto Saul. And he showed him that piece of robe that he had cut off. David pleaded with Saul, and he just wanted Saul to realize that his life could have just been taken from him in that very moment, but it wasn't. And David was crying and even bowed down on the ground to show submission unto Saul. So the circumstances were all seemingly perfect and appeared to be blessed for David to kill the king and end this manhunt. And in essence, to end his life on the run. But that wouldn't have been inside of God's will. You see, God had already promised the kingdom to David. And David trusted in the Lord's promises. And furthermore, he trusted in God's timing over man's timing. All the chips seemed to be stacked up in David's favor. But David didn't make the wrong choice based on circumstances. The current circumstances that David was presented with did not cause him to make his decision prematurely. He was patient, and he operated in godly wisdom. And to be totally honest, this hits home with me in so many situations that I've been in. Whether it be relationships, business deals, job opportunities, etc., we have the free will to make our own decisions. But decisions that are made outside of godly wisdom oftentimes come with consequences. I know we've all made poor choices in the past, and some of you may be in the midst of poor choices as you're hearing this very broadcast. Or maybe you're listening right now and you're suffering the consequences currently for poor choices that you've made in the past. And as Christians, we even make decisions with a pure heart sometimes that come back around to bite us because we've misevaluated things. But you see, David was extremely faithful with a little. He didn't jump the gun or bite off more than he could chew. He didn't even falsely evaluate the situation as his friends were so boldly doing. Jesus tells us something that is priceless in Luke chapter 16, verses 10 through 12. 
He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. And he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. He's saying that if you're faithful with a little, or even if you're faithful with what you have, you will also likewise be faithful with more. He's saying you're proven trustworthy. But if you're unjust with a little, or if you're unjust with what you have, you've already proven that you can't be trusted with any more. Jesus continues in verse 11. If therefore ye have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? Jesus is saying that if you're not trustworthy and you've proven yourself to be unfaithful in the area of money, then you can't ever be trusted with true riches. Now, verse 12. And if ye have not been faithful in that which is another man's, who shall give you that which is your own? This is heavy duty right here. And this can be applied to many situations. You see, Jesus is speaking directly towards being trusted with money in one aspect and not serving money as your master, of course. But it goes so much deeper because he ties it into being sort of a test of your character in order to see if you're able to be trusted with real riches. I mean, wow. Every decision that you make is an opportunity to prove your character. Every decision that you make is an opportunity to prove your integrity. And going further, every decision you make is an opportunity to be proven mature and even trustworthy unto the Lord. If you're making poor choices with the resources that have been given unto you, you cannot expect the Lord to trust you with any more. I'm not telling you that your salvation is at risk because of a poor financial choice. No, that's not what I'm saying. But rather, I'm saying that if you are faithful with your resources, if you're proven faithful with a little bit, you're proven that you can be trusted with greater things. This can include money, of course, just like I stated. But think about it in a larger and more spiritual term. If you make godly decisions in general, God will bless that and will begin to entrust more to you. Of course, this also means being entrusted with greater responsibilities. So many people complain about being in a constant rut. I'm sure you've got friends and maybe this even resonates with you. But so many people always complain about being in a constant rut or a constant season of challenges and hard times. Well, in many of these cases that I'm familiar with, the person has a tendency to make poor choices in various areas of their life. As a matter of fact, let me just put my own failures out there. There have been many times in my life where I was the one in constant calamity and hard times. I didn't understand why I was always feeling shafted. And then I finally realized that I was living in a constant state of consequences that were directly linked to my poor choices. I'm not telling you that hard times are always linked to poor choices, but I'm telling you that poor choices or even choices made in haste or going further, even choices based solely on circumstances can easily come back to you heaping with consequences. As Christians, we have to be faithful with what we have. This includes our time, our treasure, our talents, our relationships, and our opportunities to serve and glorify Jesus, who is the author and finisher of our faith, Hebrews 12, 12. So where does that leave us in all of this? Of course, we all want to make godly choices, and we definitely want to be trusted and proven faithful to God. Amen? Well, I want to encourage your prayer life right now. One of the prayers that my dad has always prayed for my brother and I is based on Revelation 3.8. Jesus says, I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, 
and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength and hast kept my word and hast not denied my name. When we live lives that glorify and honor the Lord, when our lives are obedient to God's word, we can justly pray that Jesus would open doors for us that no man can close. And on the other hand, we can pray that he would close doors that no man can open. And according to Revelation 3.8, Jesus has this divine power to do so. So what's the significance here? This is praying for divine intervention in our lives. This is praying for God to supernaturally provide and guide us in his perfect ways while we are here on this earth. Where we are lacking as humans, God has the power to cover us and divinely guide us. It's very easy for us to stray in our walks and begin making decisions based on our own cognizance. And even in these moments, it's easy for Christians to think that we're still operating in God's blessings and guidance. This can be extremely dangerous, and we see this even in great extremes in the modern church. I'm not pointing fingers, but I'm rather wanting to encourage you to make sure that you're being faithful with everything that you have, with your time, with your treasure, with your talents, with your relationships, and especially with your opportunities to serve and glorify Jesus. And it's in this righteous living that we can begin to pray that Jesus would open doors before us that no man can close and that he would close doors that no man can open and that your steps would be divinely ordered by the Lord. Psalms 37, 23. We have everything that we need in Christ Jesus, ladies and gentlemen, the living word of God. And he has been so gracious to outline his expectations for godly living right here at our fingertips, and the written word of God, our Bible. As we move forward into each new day, I want you to spend more time seeking his guidance and direction for your life. Make it a part of your daily routine to just spend time with the Lord as you seek his face in all that you do. Whether you're praying in your room or whether you're driving to work, take the time to talk to our Heavenly Father and pray for opportunities to grow and be proven faithful. I want to encourage you to just take a moment and thank God for His righteousness and His perfection. Thank Him for setting the ultimate example for us to follow as we live godly lives. Ask Him for total guidance in every decision that you make. I encourage you to ask for the strength to make your reliance totally upon Him. Pray that your vision would be totally spiritual and not handicapped by the physical circumstances that you face. Pray that the Lord Jesus Christ would powerfully open doors before you that no man can close. And pray that he would close the doors before you as well that no man can open in order to keep your steps holy and supernaturally ordered by God. And as always, I encourage you to pray for wisdom and discernment as you grow each day in the knowledge and saving grace of Jesus Christ Yeshua.
If you're listening right now and you haven't accepted the Lord Jesus Christ Yeshua as your personal Lord and Savior, and you haven't accepted His holy sacrifice on the cross to pay for your sins, it's absolutely impossible for you to have a solid understanding of His Word. It's impossible to find protection from the demonic realm and the days that are fast approaching, friends. And furthermore, it's impossible to have peace with Yahweh Elohim, the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ Yeshua. But here's the good news. You can start anew right now. You can repent of your sins and have the wages of your sins paid in full. Now is the time to repent and turn away from your sins and make right with the will of God. You see, the Bible declares that we don't know what tomorrow holds, so we must take action with the time that we have right now. Repentance is the first step. This means turning 180 degrees from your past thoughts, actions, and lifestyles that are in opposition to the Most High God. Because of Jesus Christ Yeshua and His once and for all sacrifice, you can be forgiven of your iniquity and every sin you've ever committed. Yahweh is a jealous God, but He's also rich in mercy. And tonight, if you're willing to admit your wrongs and repent, He's willing to show you that mercy right now, friends. The wages of our sin is death, but tonight we can receive the gift of God, which is eternal life. But as it says in Romans 6.23, only through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's no other way to come to God, folks. There's no other way to get salvation. You can't earn your salvation by good works. Fact is, Jesus Christ is the only way. Every other way, folks, leads to hell. There's no authentic way to the Father but Jesus Christ Yeshua. I'm so thankful that God sent His only begotten Son to die on the cross, a living sacrifice, and shed His sinless and perfect blood to pay the debt of our sins and the ability to be seen as blameless before God on that day of judgment. Let today be the beginning of your communion and peace with God as you're filled with the Holy Spirit and begin putting on the armor of God and growing into an intimate relationship with Him. It's the will of God that you don't perish, but rather that you repent and enter into a relationship with Him based on His terms. If you're not sure of what God's terms are, I want to challenge you to start reading your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, get one and learn firsthand what God expects from you. Christ is our only hope, friends, and my prayer is that you believe on Him tonight. That's the most important part of the show and by far the most important decision you will ever have to make in this life. Amen. It's been an interesting adventure tonight, and I hope you've all enjoyed this broadcast. If you ever miss a show or would like to go back and re-listen to an old one, every show is archived in high-quality streams on my website, fourthwatchradio.blogspot.com. That's the number 4, T-H, W-A-T-C-H, R-A-D-I-O, dot B-L-O-G-S-P-O-T, dot com. Fourthwatchradio.blogspot.com. There you'll find every broadcast dated and summarized for your convenience. Be sure to scroll all the way down on each page and click on the words Older Posts to be taken to more pages of archived shows. You can also find my shows broadcasted by the Fourth Watch Radio Network on Shoutcast, Spreaker, iTunes, or if you have an iPhone, iPad, or Android, you can download the Fourth Watch Radio Network app and enjoy easy streaming. For higher quality broadcasts, stay tuned in via fourthwatchradio.blogspot.com for all the latest shows. Like us on Facebook and feel free to add my personal page as well. If the Fourth Watch is ministered to you and you would like to help support this ministry, you can follow the link on our website. I bid you all a week filled with grace and peace in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
see you all next week. God bless and good night. You're listening to The Fourth Watch with Justin Fall on The Fourth Watch Radio Network.